Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I was working the other day, Santosh, Mm. and I got to thinking what things I just see every day around me in the hospital. Uh And as, as I often come up with ideas for future episodes, I'm just staring aimlessly off into space in the middle of a corridor until somebody pages me or bumps into me. Okay. All right. I I know that's not true because I've spoken to you at work before and I know very often you're actually hard at work taking care of people. Yeah. And I was thinking about one of the most common hospital sites that absolutely none of us pay any thought to but without which we would all be deeply, deeply inconvenienced at the least and yeah. in serious trouble. Uh, I, I know at what the you're most. saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's on. We're both on the same thing, right? Like we're. It, it's the it's the tiny friggin' ice creams with those weird little wooden paddles. Like nobody else has those. Where do they come from? How do they get there? Why isn't the grocery store? filled with like tiny little single serve ice creams that you just peel off a paper top and it comes with a little wooden paddle. I mean, what is it like? Is it made in the hospital? Like, where does it come from? No. And also (laughs) not the supply of nursing pens. (laughs) The supply of nursing pens. I, I remember as an intern, I think I ate floor once when I accidentally took a nursing pen and I, I I went down hard, man. It was I didn't even see it coming. It was just a left hook from nowhere. 
But no, I am not talking about food or writing implements. I'm talking about uh, something that surrounds you every day, but you don't yes. think about. And that, of course, is oxygen. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. We actually classify it in medicine as a drug, in fact. One of the most successful drugs of all time. Look, yeah, okay. we're all familiar with just the concept of oxygen tanks either floating around hospitals like decorative houseplants, being wheeled about like accessories for the elderly or mm -hmm. non-elderly in the post-COVID era. Yes, absolutely. So in this episode, we're going to delve into the periodic table of medicine and oh. talk about <laughs> medical oxygen, where it comes from, how it's used, how it's delivered, and where we're going with it. Because I've got some real fun tidbits, Santosh. We're going to be taking a, a Sunday stroll. We're going to be taking a weekend drive in the Wayback Machine. Ooh, and you are going to see some fascinating advancements in oxygen history that I am going to bet you didn't think existed that early. Somehow the ancient Babylonians kept oxygen in like earthen pots or something like that? Well, we're not going quite back that far, but, but there oh. will be some surprises along the way. Now, before we get into it, so uh, if you'd like to see some crazy devices, you can check the show notes for the further reading links where there is a paper with a lot of the old-timey oxygen delivery devices, and we're going to talk about those. However... Before we get started, I just want to let everybody know we are building up a mailing list so you can communicate to us what things you'd like to see in future episodes. So if you'd like to chat with us, and we would love you to, go ahead and head on over to TravelMedicinePodcast.com. I made it so very easy. And <laughs> just uh, give us your email. And if you do, as a special thank you to the first unspecified 500 we'll say, number of yeah. people to provide their email. I made a thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I wrote a special around the world in 80 plagues do -do 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 book just for you. It's a tiny little one. It's yeah. an ebook with a surprise plague that we haven't talked about in a while. Uh, but oh, yeah. off of plagues, back onto air, deep breath in, slow exhale, and <laughs> let's talk about the discovery of oxygen. This isn't just like some caveman woke up and went, oh, what this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, you're talking about actually the, the element. So, you know, we're surrounded by this. We're breathing it in all the time. And for a long time, we just thought of air as air, right? It, it wasn't composed of different things. It's just the composite of this stuff that you kind of sort of feel when the wind blows. But that you're talking about when someone came along and said, no, 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 this is actually made of different, even, you know, smaller components. Well, I got to tell you, oxygen has a pretty amusing and tragic history that deserves its own Netflix show. Oh, yeah. OK. We're going to start in 1771 when mm -hmm. Carl Wilhelm Scheel, mm -hmm. a okay. German Swedish pharmaceutical chemist generated what he called fire air oh okay, okay. <laughs> all right so uh, i'm guessing where you could just like if you lit it in the air then it would combust 
Well, you know, he heated up some mercury, some silver carbonate, some magnesium nitrate, a lot of flammable <laughs> things. <laughs> all, right. all right. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And Sheil, or as he later came to be known, Hard Luck Sheil. Oh, and, okay. And you're going to feel why. But we'll start with the reason he was Hard Luck Sheil is he was the very first to discover oxygen, as well as a whole bunch of other elements, molybdenum, tungsten, barium, hydrogen, chlorine got credit for exactly zero of them. And part of that's because uh, he will, he shared something in common with, with you, Santosh. I'm, I'm sorry to say he is a bit okay. of a procrastinator. And <laughs> yeah, give me hope. <laughs> Scheele had communicated his discoveries about oxygen by letter in 1774, but he didn't publish until 1775, or he didn't document this till 1775 he sent his publisher chemical treatise on air and fire which sounds like the next uh, avatar episode sure, yeah. <laughs> and it Absolutely. wasn't published until 1777 by which point someone else had beat him to the punch in publishing oh. his, his hard luck continued when he died prematurely from mercury poisoning you know from heating all those mercuric oxides to <laughs> yeah. discover oxygen Oh no. Oh so for people who don't fully understand here, I, I don't know all of the chemistry involved, but essentially when you take heavy metals like this heated up and this kind of a thing, you can condense certain uh you know other components of the air out. And I think the oxygen gets left behind, right? Because the, the mercury doesn't get oxidized. So you're able to isolate actually pluck apart you know individual elements by by using this kind of a very dangerous crazy method as a, for instance josh if anybody out there has seen the martian with the the poop potatoes with uh what's his name matt damon he was using a heavy metal in order to condense out water so yeah Poor, poor hard luck shield discovered all of these various things, Aww. didn't publish in time to get credit, and then died from inhaling that were released when he discovered. Okay. Who, who actually received the credit? A gentleman named Joseph Priestley. That's okay. a name built for television, if I ever heard yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. He was on, uh, I think he was on 90210, like <laughs> ancient 90210. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> Gen Z's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Our generation, no, it was Jason. Anyway, yep. <laughs> Joseph Priestley received yeah. the actual credit for oxygen discovery when he was trying to remove combustible components from air. This is known as the phlogiston theory. Uh, right. So I had to look this up. So, you know, everybody had to start from somewhere in terms of understanding how the world works. One idea of where does combustion in the air come from, right, is this this combustible stuff called phlogiston is actually just always there. And when you use it up, um, it doesn't just go away. It kind of gets absorbed into this, you know, into the rest of the air. So you could phlogisticate something by concentrating these combustible gases, or you could deflogiscate uh, deflogisticate and it would go, it would be absorbed into the air. And so this was, you know, we had to figure this out that, you know. So this was a theory that was already on its way out of style at the yeah. time that Priestley was 
studying it. So you have Flagistan, which is not one of the five stans, neither Turkmenistan, <laughs> Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, ah, Flagistan. <laughs> but instead, he was making deflogisticated air. And, you know, science papers back in the day are just such a joy to read because, first off, his paper was titled Experiments and Observations on Different Kinds of Air. It's yeah. simple. It's to the point. Mm -hmm. You know what you're getting into. Yeah. And he describes this deflogisticated air with, you know, oxygen as the feeling of it to my lungs was not sensibly different from that of common air. Oh. I fancied that my breast felt peculiarly peculiarly light uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> and easy for some time afterwards. Who can tell but that in time, this pure air may become a fashionable article in luxury. Hitherto, oh. only two mice and myself have had the privilege of breathing it, <laughs> which seals the paper for me. <laughs> I am glad we don't experiment on ourselves as much as we used to. We there, there still happens from time to time. But yeah, the subject of a lot of chemical, organic chemical, and then biologic experimentation for a very long time, the subject was just self. <laughs> I, I really want your next research paper, Santosh, to be like, only three mice and myself have had the privilege. <laughs> um, Given that I work with a almost you know uh, an occasionally deadly neurotropic parasite probably not but <laughs> just just find a way to work it in but in terms of this pure deflogisticated air becoming a luxury article uh you seen the oxygen bars with colored water in yeah. <laughs> in new york berlin vegas so joseph Priestley is talking about this in the 1700s and the feeling that he was talking about when he was breathing 100% air was he was getting basically 100% economy of oxygen going into his lungs in terms of air exchange. Um, his lungs didn't have to work as hard to get this oxygen into his bloodstream. And so, you know, you, you actually feel like it's easier to breathe and everything else like that. If, if he was unhealthy, if for instance, if he had obstructive pulmonary disease or asthma or something, then he might've been, you know, had a tight lungs and everything like that. And then he breathed in and he would have felt a little bit better. Now, having that. made yeah. this discovery, he ended up, uh, he was a member of the lunar society of Birmingham. Okay. Now this was an exclusive group. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, I so the people in Birmingham who worship the moon? No, who? No, the no. They were a bunch of lunatics. Oh gosh. Uh -huh. Um. <laughs> no. So this was the Lunar Society of Birmingham. This was an exclusive group, okay. which included the grandfather of Charles Darwin, Erasmus Darwin. Great oh, name. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And their aim was to encourage transfer of new scientific knowledge to industry. Now, the reason they were the Lunar Society, the members met every month on the night of the full moon so they could walk home safely by moonlight after long meetings through the normally dark and unpoliced streets of the city. Santosh, yeah. are you getting together for late night science sessions with a bunch of your friends? <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, stand corrected. The, no, no, absolutely. The most fun part of going to a, 
you know, we, we go to the International Toxoplasma Congress uh, for, for our, you know, the particular parasite that I study or anybody else who goes to their group. One of the most fun and sometimes productive times is all of the talks and everything are over. Everything has shut down. You have a poster room that you can go to to look at the the you know scientific posters and then everyone you know grabs a hey who wants to get a beer over here who wants to come out over here a, and then you're you're out in some of these places because we pick like remote areas to gather where you can <laughs> you can rent out the where we can practice science in yeah. peace <laughs> but yeah some of the coolest little ideas come out where you're sitting there it's about 2 a.m and you're writing, you know, someone says something and you start scribbling down on a cocktail napkin. And then, you know, maybe like a couple of weeks later after you get back to your lab and everything. So, oh, this is a really cool thing. And so, yes, absolutely. Pontificating and uh, in a very druidic way, gathering over, you know, libations and speaking convocations of science in pubs. Is still a thing. Science by the light of the moon. It's oh, a good yeah. name for a song. Uh, <laughs> so moving on from Hard Luck Shiel and Joseph Priestley yeah. of uh, 90211. <laughs> um, Way next, before zip codes were invented. By the <laughs> our next figure, and this is the one where we start getting fun, because at this point we're just calling it, remember, deflogisticated air. What are you breathing? Yes. Oh, just some deflogisticated air, no big. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it does make sense what they mean, right? Because the thing that allows for combustion and for ignition of fire is oxygen. So um, you take that out, you deflogisticate the air. Phlogisticate? So our next historical figure is Antoine Lavoisier in 1774 was pen pals with both Priestley and Scheele. And having read both of their letters he decided to repeat their experiments with more sophisticated equipment and managed to produce this deflogisticated air. And he is the gentleman who named it oxygen. Mm -hmm. And it comes from, are you ready for some medical etymology? Hit me, hit me. Okay. Uh, it stems from the Greek root oxys, meaning sharp. Uh -huh. And that's in reference to the sour taste of acids. And the assumption by Lavoisier that this air was an essential element for all acids and oh. genes, which means, of course, or genus or genesis, which means begetter. So oxygen is the starter of all acids, which was wrong. <laughs> it was it was actually <laughs> end up being hydrogen, but that's still OK. Uh, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Lavoisier is absolutely prolific these other two folks Priestley and Scheele uh you know they they have their place in history but this is the gentleman you know he did studies on acid-based combustion calorimetry or temperature the carbon cycle um identified oxygen hydrogen he was a huge pillar of modern chemistry also killed by guillotine during yes. the French Revolution. Yes, yeah, I believe he was a royalist or he got caught up in it. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's see. We've got Sheil, who died from inhaling the substances used to discover oxygen. Yes. Uh -huh. Priestley, who was chased by a mob out of town for some very strange beliefs. Yep. Uh, and Lavoisier, who named oxygen and was subsequently executed. Not because of that, you know, correlation, causation, but <laughs> but yeah. not a great history for people involved with this gas. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So now is... let's get in. Now let's get into some of the fun ones. So the transfer from the lab bench okay. to the actual practice came pretty quickly. The very first therapeutic use of oxygen was only eight years after Priestley's publication in 1783. Oh. We were using beautiful. oxygen as medicine in 1783. Oh, All right. So, okay. So it was because we could isolate it and therefore bottle it. And mm -hmm. someone had the smart idea of, oh, this is the, you know, the life-giving air. Let's give it to people who are having trouble getting air. Okay. And it went to somebody with uh, pithis. Pithis? I am going to have a lot of trouble no. this episode. <laughs> so it's just this. Not no. that. Yeah, so pithis. Not that this. Yeah, yeah. So you have to, you can say a pho, but it's more pithis. Tuberculosis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who benefited from daily inhalations of oxygen. Yeah. Uh, now, this led to... Erasmus Darwin and Theodore Beddoes founding the pneumatic institution. And Dude. they were they were both lunatics as well, or lunar oh, society uh, members. The pneumatic institution? That's so good. 1700s, the pneumatic institution was there to administer oxygen free of charge to outpatients with consumption, asthma, palsy, dropsy, Obstinate venereal complaints, scrofula, <laughs> or other diseases which ordinary means have failed to remove. Wow. <laughs> now, now, if we kind of bring those into modern times, they were using oxygen to treat tuberculosis, uh -huh. CHF. Okay, yep. Uh, so congestive heart failure, okay. that That's dropsy. We'll do an episode on that at some later point. Sure. The king's <laughs> evil, which is scrofula. Well, you remember what that one is, Santosh? Uh, so scrofula is where you get tuberculosis, but it gets stuck in a lymph node. So you get this big, ugly, swollen, draining lymph node. Yeah, so asthma, tuberculosis, and um, CHF, not bad choices for oxygen. But interestingly... The James Watt, who also ran the pneumatic institution, made no claim that oxygen could cure any of these. The best part is they were a research institute. They told patients who showed up for this free oxygen, their aim was to investigate how efficient oxygen was in treating the disease. They're just like, hey, we have an experimental treatment. You want us to try it on you? Show on, you know, come on by. It's a walk-in clinic. Uh, now, this was used in bursts. It was given intermittently in short inhalations with concentrations usually a little bit higher than normal air. So you know how much therapy they got or they gave to people, Santosh? I, I can't think of how much you would, because nowadays we do it in liters per minute, right? We do it in terms of flow. Well, I'll give you a hint. This okay. was in Britain. 
So how do you suppose they dispensed oxygen? I'll uh, be in a glass stopper, not in a wooden thing, but like something like a barrel or a keg. Pint. They gave oh, out pint. pints. Oh, okay. okay. Like a beer. Yeah. Okay. You'd, in, you'd get a pint of oxygen in mm-hmm. a bag full of common air. Pint of oxygen air in a bag full of common air. And they would yeah. gradually increase the dose observing to dilute of at least 20 times the quantity of common air. They watered down their oxygen. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) And this would have been about 23 to 28% oxygen. So in a hospital, we'll give somebody in an emergency setting 100% pure oxygen, but then we kind of wean it down as tolerated. That's not much more. (laughs) So the air that we breathe is we we talk about partial pressures of various gases. So about 20, 21% of breathable air in a normal, non-polluted, about sea level atmosphere. Uh, and so th- this is about 25% oxygen. Not that big of a, a turn up, really. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I guess enough to help a little bit. So yeah, course, interestingly, yeah. a lot of the techniques developed by the Pneumatic Institute are still used today in more modern updated forms, which include non-crushable breathing tubes, mouthpieces, okay. and a method for mass production of gases created by James Watt. Now, okay. the institution closed around 1800 because it had to become a normal hospital to deal with an outbreak of typhus. So a pandemic brought it to an end. After the pneumatic institution closed, oxygen given for short spells was pretty much brought up by everybody. The Lancet and the British Medical Journal published a whole bunch of papers in the early to mid 1800s, which essentially turned into a lot of scams. It was the goop of the day. Uh, (laughs) And and this this kind of reached peak ridiculousness by the time we hit 1869, when the Lancet published a paper advocating the use of oxygenated bread and water. (laughs) and if you're sitting there laughing at how stupid that sounds oxygenated water is still for sale today (laughs) it is and we we have the silliness like because we understand acids and bases today oh alkaline water which is supposed to be better it's not there's no evidence for it at all but josh i'm not surprised by this overall because of how especially in medicine how we treat new inventions throughout history. I'm not too surprised that the same thing happened with oxygen way back when. Well, the thing is that it's still happening. Well, that was... <laughs> no, it's true. And we have new technologies, right? Now we have hyperbaric, so you can increase the concentration of oxygen in a chamber. And... <laughs> so yeah. for inhaled, a, a typical therapy in the 1800s mm-hmm. was intermittent oxygen inhalation, getting four gallons in the morning and four in the evening, usually (laughs) delivered by just wafting oxygen from a bucket towards the face of the patient. (laughs) So not even actually delivering any O2 therapy. (laughs) Here, here, sniff this. (laughs) Prior to 1868, the whoever was giving the oxygen, con man or no, had to manufacture their own gas. And this was done 
uh, well, you can take a look through that further reading link because it's a very detailed one. I It's the one labeled images. Read this for images. But um, this was done through a variety of ways, mostly electrolysis, which is using an electrical current to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen gas. Mm -hmm. There was also one that used a pump to compress it. The, the original way was potassium chlorate and manganese dioxide were heated together okay. to deflogisticate some air. It was then passed through two bottles of a caustic soda solution, not Coca-Cola, like a baking soda kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, a in this case, a soda, which was a basic solution. Uh huh. Yeah. Then through a weak solution of silver nitrate, pure water, and a layer of cotton wool, and all of that would collect it in a rubber bag or a bladder or a whoopee cushion to, administ <laughs> to administer to the patient. So Got that's it. how you were making oxygen until 1868. In okay. 1868, we created the very first cylinders for storing oxygen. We have been able to store wow. oxygen since Victorian times. Whoa. I, I genuinely did not realize it was that old. That is fantastic. Right? That's, That's so cool. <laughs> I We're still learning you know, how to use this substance properly in terms of medicine. We have, you know, heated arguments sometimes over this is how much oxygen you should deliver to this type of a patient for optimal care and this kind of a thing, even, you know, now, centuries later. But to know that it's been bottled for so long and uh, that, wow. <laughs> like everything old is new again. So we've you know, we're going to talk about the evolution of oxygen containers. But again, remember, the first guy who discovered or at least got credit for discovering oxygen was like, maybe they'll sell it as a luxury item. And we do. <laughs> then another person, once they realized that they could mass produce it, people were like, let's just throw it into everything. Bread, water. Sure. Why not? Still happening. Uh, <laughs> then the next major discovery came around 1890. So until this time, oxygen was given intermittently, meaning you'd get it for 30 minutes to an hour, and then you'd be off it for several hours, which, you know, if you're struggling with any kind of breathing disease, probably not the best treatment. Yeah, it's kind of like getting intermittent Wi-Fi. Like at some point, you'll just feel, just shut it off, man. Just, I don't need this anymore because <laughs> you'll feel better for a bit and then you'll feel horrible. And you'll, yeah. <laughs> so in 1890, Dr. Albert Blodgett reported in the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal a new variant of oxygen therapy, and again, on somebody this time with pneumonia. Okay. He tried continuous administration of oxygen. And by the way, this is not because he thought, like, this is a great idea and going to work. Let me give you some of his words. Okay. Specifically, there's a woman of 46 with pneumonia. Okay. When I directed the continuous administration of the gas, I did so under the positive and undoubtable conviction the patient was irrevocably doomed, and the oh. best result that I looked for was simply relief to the sensation of suffocation and mm -hmm. not any curative action. At this time, I had only employed the gas in the manner ordinarily directed, that is, two or three gallons at a time, several times daily. I now directed its use without cessation. And to my great surprise, the patient not only obtained the relief intended, 
but was enabled to carry on the function of respiration. The amount employed was not far from 200 gallons in 24 hours. This is our first documented record of continuous administration of oxygen. So 200 gallons in 24 hours is about six liters a minute, which is not even remotely close to what we're seeing in like the COVID era. Right, right. So this is for community-acquired pneumonia, and we're in 1890, so we're well before antibiotics. People did recover from pneumonia if you gave them time. It, it was just a rough, rough process. But now you're able to provide support for the person. And yeah, six liters per minute for a person who's otherwise healthy, you know, 46 years old, but just needs to be supported for a bit very, very reasonable. And yeah, with a mask today, that's about what we would provide. But as you're saying, Josh, we now have the ability to deliver a lot more for people who are in much more dire straits than this one was. But again, we're only up to, we're not even into the 1900s yet, and we're already giving continuous oxygen, stored oxygen. So what do you think happened once people learned that continuous oxygen could be used as a better treatment than intermittent? Uh, are you going to give me a sad story about how this was hijacked for some sort of weird, either luxury or <laughs> like abused in a, in a funky, weird way? Let's give it for everything. Let's give okay. oxygen administration <laughs> via the stomach for resuscitation. <laughs> okay. Let's right. give it via the urethra for inflammatory mm. conditions. Not, couldn't, there's no... <laughs> How about a proposal published in the Journal of the American Medical Association by J.H. Kellogg uh, to give it as an enema for the treatment of gallstones? Wait a minute. That Kellogg? Like yep. the, the, yep. Kel- the yep. cereal guy. The cereal What's guy. What's he doing, doing with enemas? What is this nonsense? I thought his whole thing was like, I eat cornflakes because it takes Stops away my masturbation. Wolf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he'll, well, blows air up your behind to treat gallstones. So, you know, maybe don't take medical advice from the cereal guy. So this, uh, it, it, I'm, I'm still tracking with pretty much every other medical scientific, you know, advancement that's come along so far, Josh. It's, hey, this works for something. Let's keep it. Let's try it for everything. We we did this with radiation. We did this, I believe, with penicillin. Oh my so god! So we'll take a moment to dash away for a commercial break. Oh yeah! But before we do, uh, if you guys don't want to listen to commercials, this would be a perfect time to head to travelmedicinepodcast.com and uh, sign up to talk with us because we're very lonely. I mean, who else is spending this much time reading up about oxygen, really? So, uh, uh, I I, I just want to let everybody know before you go that Dr. Josh reached the end of Google. The main main boss was so hard. (laughs) He finished Google. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, bye, everybody. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. 
BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We come back soon. And we're back. So... <laughs> that was so loud in my ears. <laughs> so now that we can store oxygen... How do you get it to the patient? So, you know, we were using some pretty interesting bag and mask setups and just piping it directly from where it was made by the local chemist. But in 1907, Arbutnot Lane, yep, that's his real name. <laughs> okay. It's a British uh, name, Arbutnot. Yeah, okay, gotcha. I'm, I'm pretty sure someone called him Arby or something. So Arbutnot Lane devised rubber tubing that served as one of the first nasal catheters for oxygen administration. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then around, oh, I don't know, World War I in 1917, John Scott Haldane developed modern-day oxygen masks to treat World War I soldiers who were, you know, under attack from chemical warfare in the trenches. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you have chemist battling chemist. Yeah, and you have the development of oxygen masks used in war, uh, but those were sort of the first full face masks or, you know, more more portable. Because uh, I was going to say, we're looking at 1917. It wasn't until the 1950s that you had the first form of portable medical oxygen therapy. And okay. by portable, I mean strictly in ambulances and on scene at medical emergencies. So you couldn't just carry it around casually uh those personal lightweight units the sony walkmans of oxygen didn't start <laughs> arriving until the 1970s okay okay so big gap from you know finding oxygen containing it bottling it and then being actually able to carry it around we're talking about now we've made it from a hundred years ago with the first discovery of being able to contain oxygen Okay. to, you know, personal portable units. And here we go. O2 concentrators have continued to shrink due to the demand by younger and more active oxygen therapy <laughs> patients who wanted smaller and more mobile machines. Yeah. So uh, that's not all luxury users, by the way. <laughs> it's it, You're going to have a point where the oxygen is going to serve the needs for people who have more rare diseases, um, i.e. Uh, cystic fibrosis or our little premature babies that have uh, lung injury from, you know, their lungs not maturing, uh, you know, before they're born and things like this. So now you need, you know, tiny, tiny containers to take along. However, I'm guessing, Josh, that there's also, you know, performance athletes and that kind of thing that wanted to keep it close by because, you know, they a football player, for instance, could go through a play and then take a hit of oxygen and recover quicker. Younger and more active oxygen therapy patients. I know what they mean and yeah. I know what I visualize. 
it's not like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that, though. Okay, so now we get to how this episode actually came together. All of that yeah. was from deep research diving. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, now we're at the end of Google now. <laughs> yeah, but but how does the oxygen actually get to you? Whether it's in the hospital or those portable containers, you know, the need for medical oxygen has been on the rise for more than a decade. Yeah, and yeah. diseases requiring oxygen for treatment are a very large share of disease burden. Mm-hmm. So it starts with, let's produce the oxygen. Uh, there's about three different main ways that oxygen is produced today. The most common and the cheapest is an oxygen concentrator. It just draws in your ambient air and removes nitrogen from it. So it concentrates the oxygen, provides a continuous supply. Now, Here's where we start getting into the travel component. Concentrators work best environments with clean air, low humidity, and reliable electricity. So not going to be great in areas of, say, sub-Saharan Africa that don't have reliable electricity or areas of, say, like New York right now where the air quality is not going to be the best. Um, you really rely on your infrastructure for an oxygen concentrator. And for patients who require lower airflows, you know, five, maybe 10 liters, concentrators are a pretty simple and cheap solution. They are the preferred one during an emergency. So when you're seeing oxygen being rushed out to whatever the natural disaster du jour is, it's probably in concentrator form, but they can't provide the high flows that we require today. And they're not sustainable or scalable. So they're the least effective solution. One unit only makes oxygen for one patient, and it's tough to maintain thousands of units that electricity surges can break. Sure. Yeah. I'm I'm sure in the era of you know solar power, you know, where we have just a little bit more accessibility, it's better. But it's you're right. Where, where it would be needed the most is the places where it's the most difficult to get. Yeah. It's also the cheapest though. So they're the ones who have kind of old oxygen tanks that get used and sit off in a corner until the end of time. So now once you have a little bit more access to resources, you may start seeing pressure swing adsorption or PSA plants. Now these are standalone and they use what's called a flow and compression methodology to extract oxygen from the air. Basically, they're very, very large oxygen concentrators that can produce oxygen for many patients at once. These are the ones that you see most often in the developing world. They're used at hospitals that generate oxygen on site, and it can be piped directly to the patient's bedside or compressed and stored in gas cylinders, such as these concentrators, and administered from there. Oh, wow. Okay. So you don't have to manufacture it somewhere. And there is a downside to this kind of a thing. When you are able to concentrate oxygen like this and purify it, you, you can run some testing on there and make sure that there is no contamination that, you know, because you, you may have to change the tubing from time and again, you know, there's no mold, anything and stuff in there with the, the, uh, the other method when you're doing it on site, there's going to be some times where, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, suboptimal 
product, so to speak. So Now, oxygen can also be produced commercially by large-scale industrial plants that, call, that use something called an air separation unit, or an ASU. Okay. Now, ASUs use cryogenic fractional distillation to produce liquid oxygen that's stored in bulk tanks. Those tanks can then be converted into gas and stored in cylinders or poured into a liquid tanker truck, you know, like final destination. Sure, sure. To ship to facilities. And this is actually generally how oxygen is produced and delivered in most high income countries where there's steady demand and sufficient resources. So let's kind of take a look at the differences in how each of these oxygens are used in terms of systems. This is really context specific. So a PSA plant works well somewhere where electricity is reliable and affordable. So Ethiopia, for example. Okay, um, gotcha. You can produce on site, you have regular electricity, but somewhere where electricity is highly expensive, you really can't use a PSA plant. Your hospital will go bankrupt just trying to make the oxygen that it needs. Sure. We already talked okay. about how concentrators are great for an individual patient. They're cheap, they're fast, but you they require a lot of maintenance and they're not very effective when you're trying to produce. Now, liquid oxygen is great because it can be shipped over long distances in a cost-effective way, like a PSA right. plant can't, but it requires a steady demand. You have to know that you're going to need a certain amount of oxygen per year. You also have to have good road networks to accommodate a tanker truck with a flammable payload. Yes. Yeah. Uh, now, just because it's cold and it's in liquid form does not mean that it isn't it, it in and of itself is not highly flammable, but if you have a bunch of oxygen in one place and there's a spark, you're going to have a problem. Okay. Um, just to let everybody know, rocket fuel, okay, is often like this. There's giant liquid oxygen tanks that, you know, spray the oxygen, you know, into, into the fuel mixture uh, to, you know, allow it to combust and ignite. So, yeah, you, you need to be very careful when transporting this type of concentrated oxygen around because explosion possibility is very high. Like the logistics of oxygen delivery, I just find fascinating because it's not just about making it, which is a yeah. one set of problems. It's about how do you get it? If you've made it, do you send it down roads where if the truck hits a speed bump, the whole thing explodes? No, nope, Do you not, produce yeah. <laughs> it on site? Um, do you know how much oxygen you're going to need? If you can make your own, you're at less of a disadvantage. But if you're ordering it from, you know, essentially oxygen Amazon, you have to have a pretty good <laughs> idea of how many oxygen dependent or requiring patients you're going to have and trying to guess what your patient disease burden population is, is going to be tricky at the best of times. So today, most low and middle income economies need more than two and a half million cylinders of oxygen, wow. which a lot of hospitals were not designed to support that amount, especially during COVID. So yeah. they've had to retrofit their delivery systems, and this means some of those delivery systems can have an oxygen overload, then the oxygen becomes too cold for the pipes and breaks them in these older buildings. So even yeah. having sufficient oxygen to meet your needs can break your hospital. Hospitals can get oxygen toxicity. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you're right. You've, you've got to transport it there. You've got to have 
adequate and safe storage. And then you're right, oxygen quote unquote goes bad. Like you can't you can't store it in that liquid form for too long. It will freeze everything. And eventually, even if you have really good seals and everything else like that on your containers, it's going to boil off and go away just like if you're storing liquid nitrogen. So yeah, you have to have hit a, a sweet spot essentially in terms of you have just enough that it's going to be used on time. And that's really hard to do, especially when something like a pandemic comes around. Now, one of the more modern methods we have is again, this electrolysis where you just run a current through water to separate oxygen out. And this is fairly cost efficient, but takes about 15 years to hit that break-even point. Uh, and there is a paper I included that talked about that. You get a very high purity of oxygen from electrolysis, over 99%, um, which doesn't require any additional purification processes. So that's great. But here's the thing. U.S. hospitals, at least, don't really have national guidelines on how much oxygen they should keep in hand. They yep. just <laughs> estimate based on annual patterns and, you know, it and they have to guess whether winter's going to have a high surge of respiratory cases. <laughs> it's it's a scary thing, right? Almost I would say not not the most used drug because that might be something like saline, but way up there in terms of one of the most essential products that you need in there and you need to understand the logistics and the demand and the supply and we don't we just do not and i think you mentioned earlier santosh that oxygen doesn't expire that's not strictly true oh oh okay all right the lifespan of medical oxygen gas is about 30 months with a maximum of 36 months. So, you know, it's like milk. You can go a little past the expiration <laughs> date, but but you shouldn't. Uh, yeah. now, now, this oxygen cylinders are very clearly marked with the expiry with the expiry date of the gas inside the cylinder. Okay. Um, standard delivery through a nasal cannula, those little nose prongs, uh -huh. is usually five liters a minute or less. But people with, say, COVID or other diseases with high flow may use up to 60 liters per minute, yeah. uh, which accelerated rationing. Um, Pre-pandemic, in your field, in pediatrics, the high flow oxygen rates were based on a child's weight. Yes. Interestingly, fairly recent research found a nationwide increase in high flow oxygen use without any significant improvement in outcomes. So there's probably... An inact we're probably not judging how much oxygen to give kids in a correct way, uh, or even whether supplemental oxygen in some of these cases is necessary. Yeah, we're, well, we know that when you give just flow, so maybe it doesn't need to be pure oxygen, but some, you know, uh, pressure pushing air into the lungs. So basically increasing the end expiratory pressure or what we call peak end expiratory pressure, PEEP, that it, it relieves the pressure of, you know, the, 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 the effort of breathing. And it may actually be that we just need that flow rather than actually like pure oxygen coming through there. Um, still learning about it, still learning how to titrate oxygen for, 
small people because we've been doing it off of adults for a long time and just adjusting it by weight. And that's clearly wrong. We got to work out our rhythm and flow, Santosh. We do. We absolutely do. So now that we've talked about all the wonderful things oxygen can do in, in its, you know, hundred plus year journey to make it from, you know, the Lunar Society and Bench Labs all the way up to grandma carrying around a little portable tank. Sure. <laughs> Let's talk about how oxygen can kill you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so many ways. Absolutely. But I yeah. mean, aside from the flammability, if you have if you're on oxygen, stop smoking. I yeah. promise you, I cannot even tell you. It's it's at least a monthly occurrence that somebody comes in. Yes. On oxygen burns or something. And yeah, burns because they just lit up without thinking, oh, I have a flammable flammable gas strapped to my face. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's not even the oxygen danger I'm talking about. Uh, oh, okay then. I want to talk briefly about oxygen poisoning or oxygen toxicity. Okay. And this this happens in basically two different groups. One where you get very very high concentration of oxygen for a short duration. Okay. Or where you're exposed to a lower concentration but for a prolonged duration. So this is okay. acute versus chronic oxygen toxicity. Sure. Okay. I'm dividing it this way because you see different systems being affected. Acute toxicity is usually central nervous system, which we'll talk about in a moment, whereas chronic is more pulmonary effects. On your lungs, yeah. Mm -hmm. And some of the highest risk groups for oxygen toxicity are premature infants and mm -hmm. underwater divers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who are, not as who are not as dissimilar as you may think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in both cases, they're, you know, it's basically a concentration problem. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So who, who do you want me to talk about, Josh? <laughs> well, I want you to talk about your area of expertise. So, of course, underwater divers. Yes. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say underwater preemies. <laughs> underwater baby. I mean, yeah. underwater babies, <laughs> which may happen if we, for instance, if, uh, you know, whoever invents like the artificial womb to, to help, you know, premature babies, you know, kind of get better, uh, you know, outside, you know, it may actually be in some sort of a a tub or tank or something like that. We don't know. A giant but, yeah. glowing tube with yeah. bubbles, if sci-fi is to be believed. <laughs> That's true. So, all right. Uh, lungs are being formed when the, the, the baby is, you know, going from one cell to many cells to a fetus. Uh, and bef before about 36 weeks gestation, you don't have quite the, the right lungs to process air properly. You've grown them, but you haven't formed those really specialized cells yet. Uh, and so often we give mom steroids in order to get them to mature early. Um, well, now you either have very low amount of cells because they mature early, so they stop growing, or you have immature lungs. and for a long time, Josh, we said, okay, well, they're coming out of there. They're no longer getting oxygen from mom directly, like through the placenta and through the, the blood vessels that supply from the placenta to your belly button and, and oxygenate your blood. So we got to use those lungs. The, youngs, the lungs are inefficient. So we have to increase the concentration of oxygen in there. Well, 
when we started out taking care of premature babies and using oxygen, which is actually not a terribly long time ago, we were just said, okay, just give them as much oxygen as they need in order to get their blood concentration of oxygen up. And what would end up happening is we we didn't realize that, but this high of a concentration of oxygen in the bloodstream is not at all what was conducive for the development of the rest of the baby, especially the brain. And we would get toxic effects in terms of how the brain developed. And in scary cases, uh, you would get bleeds inside of the brain, which would be worsened uh, by these high concentrations of oxygen. So we had to learn to actually turn it down and do what's called a little bit of like permissive hypoxia, meaning, you know what, it's okay if the the labs, the, 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 the levels of oxygen aren't where they should be, but the child is doing clinically well. It's, it's totally fine and will increase as the baby can tolerate. So that's, you know, because this baby would be getting oxygen for months and sometimes and, weeks well, or months. Yeah, and that months. runs into chronic oxygen toxicity that affects the lungs because yeah. a lot of them would also get bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Right. Yes. BPD. And this is just... Number one, just positive pressure on the lungs, which you know, our lungs aren't meant to take that. They're only meant to expand and the, the air to come in like that rather than air being forced down. And number two, the, the actual toxicity of oxygen in and of itself. And it would not destroy, but kind of scar um, parts of the lungs so that while the child was on oxygen, they were doing okay, but it was also, you know, the, the healthy lung was being fibrosed and scarred over. So then they could never really get off of oxygen. So well, they were able to ultimately, a lot of these infants who have survived this scarring of the lungs will yeah. ultimately recover near normal lung function since lungs continue to grow during the first five to seven years. Yeah. However, they are much more likely, and this has been documented and proven in multiple studies that children who had this experience are going to be much more vulnerable to respiratory infections for the rest of their lives yeah. as a result of the diminished lung capacity. Right. So essentially, Josh, you know, we've got two lungs, but I think we've got actually in order for us to live, you know, as long as we're not, you know, in high intensity exercise or something like that, we've got, you know, a lot more lung than we actually need, you know, just to walk around and, and breathe. So that redundancy works in the child's favor that, okay, I've got a lot of extra tissue, so they're going to be okay. But if you give it a little bit of a hit, meaning if they get a, a viral or a bacterial infection, another person, another child who would be able to weather the storm while their lungs healed up, this child would lose their ability to get oxygen in very quickly. They'd get hypoxic or the ability to get rid of CO2 of carbon dioxide. So they'd become hypercapnic, one of the two, very quickly. So think yeah. of overinflating a balloon where it now can't really collapse. You have to force it closed. Yes. Yeah. Or it closes so fast that you can't reinflate it again. Yeah. So the first one is kind of a model of obstructive disease. And the second one is restrictive disease. Now, if we're looking at the more chronic toxicity, and let's let's move to divers as well, and then we'll talk a little bit about acute and chronic. 
lung effects can present as early as within 24 hours of breathing pure oxygen, 100%, you know, unfiltered oxygen. And a lot of those symptoms are going to include things like chest pain and heaviness, Mm -hmm. coughing Mm -hmm. and difficulty breathing, all of which can also be confused with, you know, heart attacks. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're not meant to be breathing much more than about 30% oxygen. It, it it you know, that it hurts us. Oh, you know, 30% oxygen like we learned in the 1800s from the Pneumatic Institute. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Just about. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's your pint of oxygen, sir. So <laughs> Whereas central nervous system effects have a multitude of symptoms, things like dizziness, tinnitus, which is a ringing in the ears, mm-hmm. uh, dysphoria, nausea, even seizures can develop. Um, and this this nervous system toxicity is sped up by things like raised partial pressure of carbon dioxide, stress, fatigue, and cold, all things that you see deep in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, my favorite part of this is that the nervous system effects, if they're a result of oxygen toxicity, as known as the BERT effect. What? <laughs> no, it's not. It absolutely is. <laughs> not okay. for the Sesame Street BERT and Ernie, but go ahead yeah. and look up. The <laughs> just, just go look up the BERT effect. Uh, is does this have something to do with oatmeal or okay hold on hold on uh 1899 j lorraine smith while trying to reproduce the Burt effect but here we go the first important contribution in the field of oxygen toxicity was by paul burt in 1878 oh okay so going back a little ways in the wayback machine demonstrated convulsions or seizures in larks so as a mnemonic in med school i used to picture burt with his pigeons oh no taking a deep breath and having a seizure oh (laughs) okay so the burt effect or the the paul burt effect if you want to use his entire now thing yeah (laughs) now some of the earliest effects of of the BERT effect are a twitching of the small muscles of the hand or around the mouth. And this yeah. is also a little bit of what we see with something called the bends, although that's a bit different than oxygen toxicity in the way that we're talking about it. Right. Yeah. Because that one, I believe, is, is primarily nitrogen, correct? Yes. And that, okay, that's gotcha. from nitrogen bubbles coming up. But I mean, these gotcha. are the kinds of things that scuba divers... Now, the good thing about oxygen toxicity is removing the oxygen, not all of it, like removing the, the yeah. pure oxygen, <laughs> yeah, yeah, will yeah. actually resolve all of these symptoms. Usually about four hours after you've ceased exposing them to pure oxygen, a lot of these things will resolve. Uh, yeah. If you haven't gotten to end organ damage you know if you if you haven't actually damaged something so you get back to 21% you know room air type of oxygen and then the twitchies go away your heart gets you know slows back down uh, the ph in your blood evens back up and everything like that uh, and mm. your your lungs kind of you know get back to normal okay, now, less humorously named but a little bit more commonly seen pulmonary toxicity Yes. From ox from over oxygen exposure is referred to as the Smith effect, okay. and this is after you've had prolonged exposure to oxygen at greater than half an atmospheric unit. 
The incidence of displaying these pulmonary symptoms is about 5%. Preterm newborns, as we said, are the most at risk for this dysplasia and retrolental fibroplasia. That's right. High enough oxygen over a long enough time can literally drive you blind. Yes. So the effects that we look for when we say, oh, there's too much oxygen going on here, uh, you, you can look at the lungs, but not really, because you'd have to biopsy them to see the, the, uh, the problems with it. But we look at the brain and we make sure there's no bleeds in there. We monitor that with ultrasound every now and again, because you can see through the little, the little acoustic window in the fontanelle. And then we have uh, our ophthalmologists that come by uh, on regular rounds for premature babies that do a dilated eye exam. And, you know, they, they actually bring along portable uh, microscopes so that they can look in these little baby eyes and check the retina. And we actually call this as retinopathy of prematurity uh, because it's so kind of well codified and there's nothing else like it out there. So it's, it's given its own disease just in the NICU. Now, you can be exposed to 100% oxygen at sea level for about one to two days before experiencing any kind of severe irreversible tissue damage. Beyond that, there's definitely going to be some kind of permanent effects. Yeah. Uh, now, some of these symptoms, and here's the ones I, I really want to emphasize to our medical practitioners in the audience, include headache. That's an easy one. Irritability, disorientation, hyperventilation, shivering, and hiccups. Ever had a patient who just has uncontrollable hiccups in a hospital setting? Mm, probably. They may have just some early oxygen toxicity. And before you start throwing meds like Thorazine at them, try just looking at how much oxygen they're on and possibly weaning it down. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good little kind of quick pearl that'll help you out. However, I, I do want to kind of note here that very interestingly, there's some of this that actually bears a little bit of a resemblance to, you know, lack of oxygen. So, you know, if the oxygen's turned up high and they all actually look look hypoxic in front of you, meaning that they're acting like they're air hungry, breathing fast, shivering, then, you know, again, check your, your flow and turn it down. Yeah. So uh, you rarely see hiccups as a sign of anything. So it just, yeah. <laughs> uh, I like the hiccups. That's an awesome pearl. Yeah. That's, it's just something to keep in mind. You know, we always say, look for horses, not zebras, but a uh, hiccup is a pretty good zebra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And oh. there is so much more in the show notes for this week, you guys. Like, all this started because I was just staring at oxygen containers aimlessly in my <laughs> hospital. And you should take a look specifically at the, the link from the Association of Anesthesia because it's a whole paper that shows you exactly what these old-timey oxygen setups looked like. Yeah, I, I think it's very, very worthwhile looking through those. Uh, it's It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with these links for further reading. Don't forget to head to travelmedicinepodcast.com 
and sign up for the email list, those who get there early will be able to get that special mystery around the world in 80 Plagues book. And uh, tell us what other things you'd like to see. As always, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, some combustible deflogisticated air in your nose, (laughs) spin a globe, and pick a place to go. And once you've done all of that, hey, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.